What does the word neighbor mean to you? Neighbor, uh, I kind of almost, I'm going to use my neighbor right next door. What does the word neighbor mean to you? Hi, I'm Russell Evans, the host of the My Neighbor's Voice podcast. In this episode, we have a variety of stories about what it means to be a good neighbor in America today. My wish for our country is that all neighbors could hear one another and see each other as decent people, talking about complicated issues with respect and thoughtfulness. This episode is exactly that. So let's get back to Nick talking about what the word neighbor means to him. I kind of almost, I'm going to use my neighbor right next door to me. Um, geez, she's a lot of inspiration because, you know, she's like 98 years old. Um, when I first moved over in the area, uh, she, how I met her, she was out and picking her little rose bushes in her, her garden. Um, but I always admired her, the, the way she kept up her yard and all that. But when I got to know her, you know, her age, you know, how long she'd been around, how she seen the neighborhood, what it was. You know, I, I always thought like this could be my grandmother, you know, so anything I can help to do to help this lady, you know, I, I want to be that for her. Um, it may that be taking out the trash, cutting the grass, getting the mail or whatever, because I'm in South Carolina. My grandmother's in North Carolina. I'm pretty sure it's a couple young guys around that's saying the same thing, but I feel like, you know, if I play it forward, hopefully somebody else will kind of play it forward. Uh, but, you know, neighbors, some neighbors, you know, we see that we live next door to them. We don't even know nothing about them outside, you know, that, you know, it's a husband and wife and they got a dog or, or something. Um, but uh, neighbors, if we allow people to come into our lives or get to know people or just branch out, uh, some neighbors do become, you know, family after a while. They're just kind of like that friend that, you know, you grow up with and all that. Because uh, I still have a, a friend back from Michigan that, you know, I, I call because, you know, we, we started out as neighbors. So it can be a lifelong friendship. I mean, you can learn a lot from them. Um, back to my neighbor next door, I learned a lot about the community. I learned a lot about other neighbors and found out that People have been around for a long time, um, but, you know, just kind of looking out for each other. You know, I think it's, uh, it's a good thing because we just got to help each other out. And I feel that's what that's what neighbor means to me, you know, looking out for one each other, helping out. Because sometimes, you know, you know our neighbors watch us more than our family do. So they know more of our moods and our routine than other people do. So, you know. That sometimes can be kind of like a gift and a curse, but it's kind of like a, a two-edged sword with that. But, you know, I, I would look at neighbors, some neighbors as kind of like extended family and close friends. So um, thanks for listening. Now we'll hear from Linda. Um, what is your experience with gardens or gardening? Who first shared a garden or gardening with you? These questions are too easy for me. <laughs> you know what? I am a small town country girl and we grew up raising gardens. My, my father and my uncle who lived right next door to us had two magnificent gardens. Um, and a part of... <laughs> Our jobs as kids were to do certain things with the food grown, the vegetables grown in the garden, like 
shelling peas. Oh my God, shucking peas. Oh my gosh, I hated that. My green, my, my thumbs were hurting. Um, but what has happened as a young adult and as a not so young adult, garden has become therapy, became therapeutic for me. No matter how tired I am, no matter what's going on in my life, guard, getting in the dirt actually brings me such joy and relief. So, you know, what is my, you know, you know, what is my experience with gardening is, is the fact that I was exposed to gardening as a very young child and I learned to, um, to, to actually love it. And it, it was, it was my parents, my mom, my dad, I had an aunt that lived with us. You know, we grew everything. We grew absolutely everything, onions, potatoes, squash, anything you can think of, we grew it. Um, so, you know, that, that, that was my first experience with gardening and it has become a very important part of my life. So thank you for listening. Next, we have Susan answering the question, what do you think are the differences between civic and personal freedom? Well, if I understand the question correctly, a personal freedom is something that um, we, ha we have to, um, you know, go to the store and buy what we want or read the book that we want or do something that's expressive of our personalities. So there are things that we are, we are allowed to do that do, that do not infringe on someone else's freedom. I mean, all freedom is constrained by, um, in a society by the effect it has on somebody else. So we are personally free to spend our money, think our thoughts, do what we want, um, as long as it doesn't infringe on somebody else's. Civic freedom is our, our freedoms that are um, granted to, to us as members of a, um, of a society, of a community. So we are free to vote or not vote. Um, we are, although some people think that it should be required like it is in, I believe it's Australia or New Zealand is required to vote. But anyway, a civic freedom is something that we do um, as part of a community and it involves our relationship with the, with the community in terms of our responsibilities in a, um, in a democracy. And a civic freedom might be, um, well, it's, I have a hard time with civic freedom and the <laughs> difference between a freedom and a responsibility because I see them almost as identical but a civic freedom would be um, um, to stay informed on the news, to take before voting, to be well informed about the issues, to understand who is, who is um, 
who's running and what they stand for. Um, just being a good citizen. Um, well, if we want to preserve democracy, we have a responsibility to do to take those actions that are necessary to preserve it. I don't think it just means doing what you want, regardless of anybody else. Thank you. We heard from Nick before. Here he is again. Okay. What are your thoughts about respons <laughs> responsible gun ownership? Um, my thoughts about it. Well, honestly speaking, I'm for it um, because I'm a gun owner myself. Um, you know, with everything going on in the world today, it's kind of a touchy subject, but, you know, I'm also a firm believer with it, you know, Guns don't kill people, people kill people. And it may sound ignorant to other folks, but, you know, ignorance kills. That's what I believe in. And, you know, the knowledge of, you know, gun ownership and using it and using it for self-defense and not for just be a tough guy. I think it's kind of a difference. So, um, you know, I have a family that I have to protect. And, you know, I feel comfortable enough to know that I can sleep at night if something was to come and try to harm me and mine as if, you know, in our solitude and, you know, our place of peace. Um, and also, you know, my job, you know, I feel a little secure, you know, that I'm able to have a little bit extra protection if I am put in a situation where I do have to defend myself. Um, so being responsible is, I, I feel like just, just knowing what do you have to do when you have to do it? Um, <clears throat> and also just kind of said this too, by, by being honest with this, um, I know who I am and I know what I look like every day. Um, and everybody watches the news, everybody knows what's going on. So it's kind of a, a very touchy subject to know that certain things are not equal and they're presented to be equal. Um, but at the same time, I am going to educate myself and my friends and the people that look like me is um, know, be educated in, you know, certain things so that we may be able to stand our ground, that we may be able to use the tools that's supposed to be for everybody and not be ignorant to the fact uh, or scared to even own it because of what we look like or where we come from. Um, so yeah, uh, that's my piece on it. So you know, but just 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 the knowledge of it. And, yeah, it's very touchy. So thanks for uh, thanks for listening. Here is Deborah. In general, Americans avoid talking about death in any context. Do you think we would benefit from more openness around end of life experiences and issues? Um, I'll say that yes, I think there would is definitely a benefit to, you know, more open conversation. I think what has happened first is, I guess, creating a comfort level with doing so. Um, I don't think anybody really wants to think about the end. Um, you don't want to think about you know, your loved ones um, not being with you anymore. And it's easier to, 
you know, not think about it or not plan to talk about it and, you know, to openly avoid it just because it's, it's uncomfortable. So I think the first thing would have to happen is just to establish a comfort level with the reality that your life is going to end. Um, a family member's life is going to end, you know, a pet, whatever the case may be. Um, so one, we have to establish a comfort level. Two, absolutely, we would benefit from being more open um, around that issue. And probably um, when we do have that experience, it would be easier somewhat um, because we did establish an, a comfort level and recognize the reality of that. Thank you for listening. Next, we have TJ. What does liberty and justice for all mean to you? Do you think most Americans share your understanding? Um, wow, this is, this is a detailed question. <laughs> um, I would say when I think about this, I kind of this grounds me a bit in my history as a military veteran, being raised by a military mother. We have a lot of military presence in our family. And it, it just kind of comes from my mom always saying, saying, you know, treat the janitor like you treat the CEO. You know, you hear that all the time now, but I remember hearing that all my life growing up. And that was just how my mom was. She accepted people um, that other people didn't accept. You know, she had friends from all walks of life, you know, tall, short, different races, nationalities, you know, you name it. That was just how she was. Um, she was an aircraft mechanic in the Air Force because someone told her women don't do that. Um, and that to me, when I read that question, it just makes me think of her um, influence in my life that we should all be treated with respect and we should all have the same opportunities presented to us. And um, do I think most Americans share my understanding? I, I think a lot of people maybe feel this and they think that this should be the case, but I don't think we all act this way. And we're all guilty of it, I'm sure, in some form or fashion. Um, but I think most people, my gut feeling is most people want everybody to be treated fairly and for people to have, you know, equal rights across the board and be respected and um, treated as a human being. Uh, I don't think that's always, obviously, that's not always what we see um, or what we even experience. Um, but my hope is that we get to this place. The other side of that coin is because there are so many differences of this understanding, you know, it creates a little bit of chaos and sometimes out of chaos, we learn things. So I don't think that things that happen that are unjust or unjust are always a bad thing because we do learn and hopefully grow from those things and, and gain a better understanding of what that liberty and justice for all is about. Thank you for listening. Hmm. Yes, uh, I'm Sabrina. I'm from Greenville. Um, what or who inspires you most in your daily life? 
what I immediately thought about, it doesn't totally answer the question, but what I did immediately think about were um, children. I, I, I used to work at um, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in the immunology lab. And uh, um, I did not, I was not a nurse. I did not treat uh, any of the children that were there, but um, every day we would go to the lunchroom and there were all the outpatient children there uh, eating lunch. And they, they were in various uh, stages of um, chemo treatment, radiation treatment, uh, all of that, um, amputated legs, uh, arms. Uh, and I guess they inspired me at the time and they continue to inspire me. I, I, it's one thing for adults that, you know, I've been around for a while to go through difficult times and days, but um, how they manage to go through what they go through um, and come out the other side, most of the time, not always, um, they inspire me to um, do more than I might uh, think that I can do. Um, so thank you for listening. Now we have Marianne. How do you feel about the efforts around being politically correct? Well, I think politically correct now, maybe the next rendition of that is the woke culture. I maybe could be wrong, but um, that's the understanding I have from our adult children. Um, and it's, it's an interesting uh, discussion that we've had as a family about it. Um, you know, uh, most of you know that my husband was in Congress as a Republican and is still a Republican. Um, our children are not, <laughs> but the woke culture is not where they want to be either. And they have said to us more than once that it's a frustrating part of the, that side of the coin for them. And so one of the things that, um, that they have said to us is the reason it's frustrating is because there is no grace in that culture. And um, that you, it's, it's, you have to be lockstep a certain way. And so I think um, politically correct is maybe, like I said, perhaps the precursor to that. And I, I just think we have to be careful not to, um, put ourselves in boxes. And politically correct, I feel like was, is a box that we often you know, feel like we might, should be there. Um, instead of just trying to think of you know, what are policies that are going to be impactful and effective and work for everyone. And especially for those who do in, in government being um, one of the jobs being to pull people or to help people and to help them pull themselves up that we need to make sure those, those policies are really sustainable and that it's something that we can continue to do as a government to help those that are in need and to be like we've said before this evening on equal footing. Um, 
I don't know that that terminology needs to be politically correct. So I, I think it just needs to be pretty straightforward. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Here is a story from Paul. When were you the proudest of a political event, past or present, election or legislation? And um, that's uh, interesting. So, um, gosh. <clears throat> so in my um, previous, well, before I retired, one of the positions I had in our company is I oversaw compensation and benefits. And uh, the company I worked for was Caterpillar, the big heavy uh, construction equipment manufacturer, conservative company based in the Midwest. And um, we would get pressure from time to time to open our benefits up to um, same-sex couples. And um, I've got a, you know, my background is as a, as a um, Christian, so I have my thoughts on, on that. Um, and, uh, and the company's position was pretty consistent with mine. The, the thought at that time was, you know, it's not recognized under the law, uh, the, the union of, of uh, same-sex couples. So why should we provide that benefits um, to them. So the idea being that we provide for a, 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 a heterosexual couple, we would provide for the spouse and the family, we should do the same thing for same-sex couples. And that was before, I'm trying to think of the year, I want to say it was, was it 2012 before 2013, I think in that time frame, uh, when same-sex um, marriages were, were uh, recognized, I think first by the IRS, but then it pass through. And um, the guidance we would always get from our CEO, and I, I have to admit, I was going back and forth. I was struggling with it. Um, I have family members um, that, are, uh, that are gay. And, um, you know, it's again, one of those things when you know people who are dealing with it, you really feel some empathy. And the, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, we, we uh, it, it really isn't fair. I mean, you may have your, your views about whether you think it's moral or not, but whether if somebody is um, living in a union, and I think there were civil union laws in some states before the uh, uh, same-sex legislation, when federal legislation was put in place. Long story short, obviously it was um, eventually put into place. And we had a, a change in our CEOs and the CEO that came in, in the past, they would always kind of hint they wanted us to research it and maybe find some reason as we did our benchmarking, uh, why we wouldn't do it. And one reason was it didn't keep people from coming to the company. So it wasn't something that, Folks are saying, well, I'm not going to go work for Caterpillar because they don't allow same-sex benefits. But then the, the next iteration was do it in, from a standpoint of fairness. What's fair? And that just completely changed my view. Um, and my view with regard to same-sex unions generally has, has changed and become much more um, open. Um, and so I would say when, when I saw that, I thought that was really an example of saying, you know, I may not agree or I may have issues with it, but in the end, the fair thing is to say, you know, you can love who you want to love. It's recognized um, by the federal law. And if you've got issues with it, those, those are yours to have. But um, that, I guess, to me was a, a proud moment um, in our country's history. So thank you for listening. Next is Marty. What national, social, and or political responsibilities do we bear towards our African-American citizens 
whose families were former slaves. I have mixed feelings about that um, because um, I don't think we can I don't think we can go back with reparations, but we just have to give them a, uh, an equal opportunity to do like we do, and that's to vote. And and we need to also have a responsibility to provide ways to vote that are, are responsible. Um, I just think that not everybody has can get off from their job to go vote. So that's why I'm in favor of, of Sunday voting uh, or, or different ways to vote. I'm not in favor of what Georgia just did. So um, um, I think I think there are some ways that together we should be able to come up with something. Uh, but as far as going back you know, to the uh, slavery time. I mean, I had family in Louisiana that that uh, had slaves. They were it's cotton, and that's but and so I have to say, well, they. I, I heard it for the first time, and I went, oh, my family had slaves, and um, but that was at a time that was different, and so I just think that we need to turn around and say, okay, uh, let's. I'd like to forget that it's African-American. I'd like to think of them more as people. Thank you for listening. For our final selection in this episode, we wanted to include an excerpt of a discussion from the end of one of our forums. One of the best parts about My Neighbor's Voice is that it teaches people to listen to one another again. Then, when our participants do get the opportunity to have an open discussion, there's a thoughtfulness and patience that has become rare in our culture. We wanted you to be able to hear this. Also, as a note to listeners, not all the voices featured in this episode attended the same forum. Therefore, in this final selection, you'll only hear the voices of Marty, Paul, Sabrina, and Marianne. Enjoy! So if there's anything that we discuss that you'd like to talk more about or questions that you might have, this is a really good time to be able to do that. So there, there is one I'd like to uh, address if, if I could. And it was Marty's question dealing with um, reparations. And we don't necessarily have to go back to the question. I, I just, uh, I really appreciated her response. Um, and I think one of the, because I was somebody who always said, no, nope, reparations, no way. And I'm coming around to the idea that we need to do something. But the big problem is logistically, administratively, how can you possibly handle it? And if, if you have a chance, the city of Evanston, Illinois, just did something that was very, I thought, um, very, very progressive. And they're, not, they're doing reparations not for, for slavery. What they're doing it for is what Marianne talked about, which is redlining in their city. And so they're acknowledging that redlining took place, um, you know, over past past decades in their city, and basically have a fund set up that if somebody can prove that uh, you know they were subject to it, that they tried to get a home in a certain area, were steered away from it. I'm not exactly sure I understand the um, the level of of uh, evidence that's required, but um, if they do that, then they will get 
uh, assistance towards mortgage, so get mortgage assistance. And I thought that was a very elegant way to deal with that because it's very specific. So it's a very specific harm that they suffered that can be proven and they're going to be compensated in that area, in the housing area. So I just thought that was uh, very creative of them to do. I think it's very easy to just say, oh, there's no way, how are you gonna manage you know, African-American, uh, you know, all the African-Americans in this country and who qualifies and who doesn't. And, but to say, you know what, no, in this specific area, we know there was a wrong and we're gonna make it right. And I, I just thought that was a great way to handle it. And what city was that again, Paul? Uh, Evanston, Illinois. So it's just oh. north of Chicago. Part of, you know, the reparations thing, I think what you're saying, Paul, is so true. It's, it needs to have like a how to do it. Their arm of this same kind of thing is the Community Remembrance Project in Greenville, where they're remembering the lynchings um, of those, the four lynchings in Greenville County. And so last week they had their second remembrance on Zoom, the first one they did in person, it was in Taylor's. Last week they did one, Community Remembrance, um, Tom Keith, who was lynched in Traveler's Rest, which was close to home to me because I know where he was lynched. You know, I know the road that they talked about. Um, and the family name of who lynched him is a big family name in Traveler's Rest. So it was just really hit me hard. But after that, as part of that, they had an interview with a PhD student out of USC in, in Columbia. Um, and he said, uh, he's a uh, African-American, um, Puerto Rican. And he said, one of the conversations that he says that we, uh, that, that his white neighbors don't think about is not only the conversation with his children about what you do when the police stop you, but how does it feel as a young black man to walk into a room and know that you're already, you know, know that you're being, what people think of you because of your color of your skin, you know, the, the impact of that, the very cellular impact of that. And I just had never thought about it at a cellular level, like this person was saying, you know, it just, it just the emotional part of being racially um, judged or judged because of the color of your skin was just, it just hit me like a wall. And I just, um, so I think in the reparation conversation, I think if we just were all more aware of, of what has gone on in the past and sometimes is continuing in the future, but just more aware of just seeing that person as a person, you know, not being colorblind, but just seeing them as a person. And I think that's what I'm hearing from our neighbors in that way. I, you know, we're really hopeful that for my neighbor's voice, this will be a next step of bringing, of that kind of bringing people together. So that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did not know that Levittville uh, existed and why and how it was uh, uh, denied to Black people. It, it, you know, it was the community that um, actually a Jewish builder put together uh, after World War II up in the New York area, I guess. And um, black people were denied, even GIs were denied um, moving in. They couldn't even rent one of the homes, much less buy it. But I mean, I guess I really knew that that was going on. That has been going on a very, very long time. Uh, even when I was growing up, I saw, but I, you know, it, it just kind of hits you in the head, like, mm -hmm. you know, 
and and then I was talking to not a neighbor but somebody in another neighborhood and that subject came up and they said oh yeah it's in the contract in our um, homeowners whatever you call it association that a black person can't um, buy and they said nobody really paid attention to it anymore but it's still there it was like oh my gosh anyway it's just pretty disgusting to me but that's incredible. In 2021, that that's still in their covenant. I know. It just, it's disgusting, yeah. really. You know, um, I'm a member of a community in inner city church, and it's called St. Anthony's. And it's, it's an African-American community in the west side of Greenville. That's where I've seen you before, Mary. Uh, I was wondering. I thought I had so. <laughs> so we have always been committed, and have more recently, particularly under Father Pat. Um, that we would address affordable housing. And even beyond that, we would buy with our money homes. And I physically went out for probably six months to a year helping to, to like Habitat for Humanity work on those homes and build them. And when we talk about it, thinking what you were saying, Paul, what Marty addressed is this is how today we begin to say reparation, not necessarily so much as not just letting a hand out, but a hand up. Yeah. saying, you know, things are tough and we can level the playing field somewhat by making sure you have at least a chance for affordable housing. And now they face actually losing their community on the West End. And we, if anyone has ever stepped out the front door of St. Anthony's, you look straight out at the Blue Ridge Mountains. And I know the first time I saw it, I said, oh, this is going to be valuable property. So it is a challenge, but our challenge is, is to find a way that there's affordable housing, that there's equitable pay. Paul, I was also an HR manager for years, for 40 years. And that was part of it is my goal every day was to make sure I have employees that had good health, had good pay, that knew that they could come to work and, and concentrate on that because they weren't worried about how do I take care of my family and my home and my health because I had those things. So I think part of that answer is let's make it more equitable today to have an experience together instead of different classes of people. It's a real challenge. As always, help us spread this podcast by telling a friend about it. And if you are feeling just a little bit brave, come and join us on the second Thursday of every month so that we can hear your voice. Sign up at myneighborsvoice.org. Be well and thanks for listening.